Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. So hello, Evolution 2.0. This is Perry Marshall, and I'm here with a very interesting guest, Daniel White Hodge. And... um, He's, I'm sure, one of the most eclectic guests I've ever had. He's a hip-hop culture expert, which is probably not something that you might have expected that we would have on this podcast. But um, we did an interview uh, a few months ago. He he was interviewing me. Um, We were introduced by Dr. Jeremy Weiss, who's one of the most connected guys I know. And, um, And we got into some really interesting stuff, and I thought, you know, this guy would be really interesting. And uh, it wasn't out of any sense of obligation or reciprocity. It was like, you know, I think this would be a really interesting conversation. And he is a professor of communication arts department at North Park University here in Chicago. And there's a lot, a lot of things I want to talk to you about today. So um, <laughs> he, he has a new book out, uh, which is called Homeland Insecurity a hip-hop missiology for the post-civil rights context, uh, which uh, another way of putting that might be, so how do hip-hop and Christianity address the racism in the world? Now, you may ask, well, what does this have to do with evolution? Well, I'll tell you one thing it has to do with evolution is the original title of Darwin's book was On the Origin of Species by by means of natural selection or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. And so racism has been intimately connected with evolutionary theories for a good 150 years, if not longer. In fact, I'm a little bit surprised. Maybe Daniel's not. I'm a little surprised that Darwin still gets fawned over to the degree that he is. Um, Given all of this, but here we are. And so I figure, well, that's enough of a connecting point. And then, you know, one of the other points of Evolution 2.0 and a lot of my business talks is that you always get interesting things when you hybridize things together. Well, hybridizing hip hop and evolution. I mean, I don't know of anybody that's done that. So Daniel, here we go. (laughs) Well, Perry, thank you for having me on, man. It's uh, it's an honor and and definitely a pleasure of mine. So I've been delving into your background and I watched some of your video online and, you know, let, let me actually just start with a little, my own story, because I think yeah. we can bridge this in. And so I moved to Chicago from Lincoln, Nebraska um, when I was 23 and I'm 50 now and in Nebraska. So in Lincoln, Nebraska, there are so few black people yeah. That you never really talk about it. Okay. Yeah. Like, no, in Chicago, people talk about black and white and all kinds of colors and races all the time. You go to India town, you go to Chinatown, there's black neighborhoods, there's Hispanic neighborhoods. It's like out there. 
there's so little diversity in Lincoln, Nebraska, that it was almost embarrassing to talk about it. Like when I was a kid, like I would never say to one of my black friends, well, you know, like you're black. It's like we would just sort of go with we're all the same. Yeah. And I might be a racist if I mention stuff like that. Well, then I moved to Chicago and it's just a completely different deal. So several things happened. First of all, I noticed that for some reason it wasn't particularly easy to make friends with black people. Mm-hmm. I, I just felt like there was a buffer zone and I didn't really understand it for a few years until I started to realize for, because of several experiences that black people have a whole different life experience in Chicago than white people do. Like they get pulled over by police a lot more and they get passed over for jobs. When I, when I was a sales engineer calling on different companies, the only companies that had black people in management were the automotive plants and the steel mills. I don't remember any other engineering departments or anything. We did a foster um, care situation for, for two and a half months for a little black girl she was a newborn and needed a place to stay for a few months. And we took her in, it was 20 years ago. And then the, the paternal grandmother took her in and we thought we wouldn't see him anymore. Um, but then we get this call from the social worker a couple of weeks later and the social worker goes, Hey, um, the grandmother wants to know, would you like to be her godparents? Hmm. Well, we've never done anything like that before. Like, uh, sure. So we go to the old ship of Zion church of God in Christ on the West side of Chicago. They have this, (laughs) they have this christening service. And all of a sudden it was like, we were in like, they invited us over to their house, which by the way, was a very poor house in a very bad neighborhood with hardly any furniture but like we're we're like their white cousins from the suburbs, and, and it's like, hey, these people took care of Drea for three months. Everybody's like, oh, awesome, great, and it's like <laughs> we were in, okay. And then and like I took her and her brothers to church for the next ten years, and like kind of sort of part of the family. But this is like a true West Side of Chicago, you know, rough neighborhood, bad background drive-by shootings, all that kind of stuff. And like, so this is just this collision of of two completely different worlds. Therefore, I at least, I mean, I've never been black. I'm kind of as white as they get, but I am familiar with what people are talking about. And I think a lot of times white people have no idea what people are talking about. Like, so there's a, uh, maybe where I'd like you to pick up is there's um, there's a chapter in your book where you talk about the Rodney King trials mm-hmm. in 92. Yes. I lived in Lincoln, Nebraska in 92. I watched this on TV. I'm like, what is this? Like, yeah. I couldn't yeah. make sense of it. Like, well, I'm pretty sure I saw the cops beating the guy on the video. I mean, it kind of seems like that's what was in the video. And then, they have this trial and then everybody's really angry and like, what is going on here? So uh, why don't you pick up from there? Like, 
<laughs> then you, you go on and tell your story. So, <laughs> well, absolutely. How does this work? Well, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, there's, there's actually a lot of science within looking at race and particularly ethnicity and the differences. I always try to tell folks, you know, the differences between race and ethnicity, if we're looking at it from just a, you know, if we just want to break it down real quick. You know, race is something that you that, that's always on display. Ethnicity, you can hide. Um, you know, and we about how race was developed, you know, folks can go all the way back and start studying, you know, Bacon's Rebellion back in the late 1600s and look at the development of how folks, you know, indentured European servants who weren't even called white at that time, you know, were gathering among uh, indentured other African, you know, folks and saying, wait, we're getting our clock clean by, you know, the elite and, you know, we should amass ourselves and, and uh, actually do something. And so, you know, this system of race was created and those revolts and riots, you know, almost stopped in instantly with, uh, with that and whatnot. And so again, that's historical, you know, you can look at eugenics and, and, you know, how science was developed, like you said, you know, around how blacks have been looked at and then, you know, how science and religion has been mixed in. There have been certain religions that have said, you know, because blacks have been cursed, this is why they live the earth this way and whatnot without, you know, over, you know, without, without ever taking into effect some of the systemic and structural problems, you know, like you said, just some of the differences between, um, you know, our experience. But yes, fast forward to April 29th, 1992, um, there is, you know, I always say this is, and this is what Cornell West said uh, at one point, that, you know, we live in the United States of amnesia because there's so much stuff that gets overlooked and a large swath of folks just never understood what we in, you know, the black community, black and brown, you know, community were enduring for, you know, for many years leading up to, you know, the riots. I would say, actually, if for your listeners, you know, if they get it, they want to get a background on this, they can actually go look. So ESPN put out probably one of the best documentaries I saw uh, on O.J. Simpson. It was a six-part series, um, and it was looking at O.J. Simpson. It took it from... OJ's beginnings all the way to the point that he got arrested in Las Vegas uh, and whatnot. And it covered everything in between. And it really examined why folks were so upset in regards to the 92 uprisings. And so, uh, yeah, that's where I come in. I mean, I, you know, I was uh, actually born in the South and, you know, uh, Texas, a little rural town. And so uh, the N word was really, I thought it was a, a nickname of mine because I was the only black. 40 mile radius. And so it wasn't until second grade that I found out that it was a derogatory term, you know, because so, everybody was calling me this, like, hey, nigga, this go to the ball, hey, you know, and so is, and that wasn't that long ago. I'm not that old for your listeners. This was just in the 80s and, and whatnot. So I'm not that old. And so, you know, to give you an example, you know, my a friend of mine in the sixth grade came dressed as a Ku Klux Klan member and, you know, and, and won first place for the Halloween dress up contest. So this is really, yeah, yeah, brother. This year. is not an onion headline. No, no, this is, this was for real. This was, uh, this was, this is what was happening in my, in my grade school. And so thankfully my mom moved me uh, to California, but you know, as they always say, out of the frying pan and into the boiling pot of fish fry. And so, um, you know, it was crack era and uh, my mom unfortunately became addicted to crack. And so, you know, the story, yada, yada, yada. Um, yeah, man, I was just uh, uh, upset, upset and frustrated because this is, uh, in the time, you know, for those of you who are older than 30 know that there was a time before smartphones and um, there was a time before the internet and we had to carry around these huge things on our shoulders called K 
camcorders if we wanted anything to be recorded. And so this was the first recording of a, of a beating uh, that anyone had seen the year prior, 1991. And so we all in the black and brown community were like, man, this is what's been happening to us for years. Thank God they finally got it on tape. Now that people can see, the world can see, you know, we'll finally have some justice. So, you know, because these beatings have been going on for years. I mean, they're just, you know, vicious, nefarious type of things, you know, where, you know, you would fear getting picked up by the police than you would getting, you know, caught by another clique or crew or gang uh, because, the, you know, the police were that vicious, right? They take you down to the wharf and beat you uh, because that's where the um, uh, the sea lions were. And so, you know, you no one could hear you scream, right? And so those are the type of things, right? Uh, and they were, after they got through beating you, then they would drop you off on the wrong side of town and hope uh, you would get beat up even further. And so uh, this is illustrated in the, in the, in the movie uh, Menace to Society, for, again, for your listeners who want to kind of get caught up on some of these things. So, yeah, I mean, when we saw the not guilty verdict, it was rough, <laughs> to say the least. And so, um, you know, I, I was involved in, in, in the uprisings. Uh, you know, I think for me it was a moment when I really wanted to – I knew, I, knew if, I, I couldn't exist as an individual, as a human – um, I was willing to die just to just to exist, just to prove my existence. And, you know, and the uprisings in Los Angeles were much bigger than the 64 uprisings in Watts that were mainly con- largely contained in Watts. This has stretched out uh, into the city of Los Angeles. And so that was an interesting time because after that, it was rebuild Los Angeles came up in 93 uh, it was, I think there was uh, close to quarter of a trillion dollars raised that said it was going to come to the quote unquote hood. There were 450,000 jobs that were promised. Gangs were united. I mean, it was this kind of t- time of unprecedented hope for the black and brown, particularly the, uh, the impoverished and disenfranchised black and brown community. And so, but however, within a year, this was all promised in June of 92, uh, by the time uh, July of 93 came around. Uh, I don't know where that money went to this day. I have no idea. I've never seen a red cent. So if any of your listeners have seen a red cent, uh, I'll take a few of those red cents. And so, so hang, hang on, hang on. Yeah. So, so rewind a little because mm-hmm. you covered a lot of ground here. Yeah. Yes, sir, yes, sir. Back up. You, you tell about being at school and yes. watching the Rodney King verdict on yes. TV. I want you to just slow down and say, okay, so here's what I thought was going to happen. And then here's what happened and here's what it meant to me. Here's what it meant to my friends and my family. And here's what we think was probably going on behind the scenes. Can you just, and then, and then we'll go into the, the money and all that other stuff. Sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, no, I was a senior in high school and, uh, I was remember well. It was uh, fourth period, right before lunch, and it was uh, you know my English English four class, and we had a closed circuit television, and you know the teacher thought it'd be good to to watch some current events, and so she turned on uh, the television, and it was it was a trial, and they were announcing the verdict, and honestly, I I was tuning most of it out because I was like, this is open and shut. I mean, yes, they had moved the trial to Simi Valley, yes, they had moved it to a predominantly white environment, took it out of L.A. County, uh, which this was done strategically. I mean, when you look back and, and whatnot, I mean, we didn't necessarily know that at the time. We just, it, although we thought it was odd that it was being moved from Los Angeles County, this happened within Los Angeles County. And now it was moving, you know, into Simi Valley. Simi Valley, of course, is no longer predominantly white. It's predominantly first and second generation um, ethnic minority Mexican and Guatemalan. Uh, but at the time, this was an affluent uh, suburb of Los Angeles. And so 
you know, it wasn't until we heard the verdict, we're sitting there thinking, man, can you believe, you know, can you think, man, what if, what if it was a not guilty verdict? And then we, we heard it, and, and I kid you not, from what I can remember of that moment, it was like seeing red. I mean, it was like, you know, all of us who were ethnic minorities and who were folks who were white and who could sympathize were pissed. I remember uh, walking out of the classroom. I don't even remember what happened in my backpack or folder or anything like that. When we're walking in to what we call, you know, kind of the Greek theater was kind of the central location of our high school. Um, and it was just like the, the classrooms were emptying out. Our school was about 2,000 students at that time. And it was just, you know, 2,000 students, almost 2,000 students, predominantly black and brown um, and Pacific Islander were emptying out into this, you know, the center area. And we were just pissed, you know, uh, people burning, you know, pulling out flags and burning them up. And so that's a, a representation, right, because of this history. People started saying, like, I knew it. I knew this wasn't going to happen. We were not going to get justice, you know. And from there on, just kind of, you know, just things just tumbled and built up and built up and built up to where it got to the point where we were just like, all right. If we can't get justice, then like they said, no justice, no peace. Um, and like I said, I was, I was at that point, I had made my peace with God and, and I was ready to die for, for this, for this cause. And the cause was just, just to live, just to live as a black man, just to, just to, just to not be a threat to white society. And yes, Rodney King had issues. Yes, Rodney King was pulled over, but to endure the beating that he endured, and he didn't even die. I mean, we're not even talking about Trayvon Martin, Mike Brown, any of the recent, you know, episodes where we're not even getting beat anymore. We're just getting killed. This was something for me as a Gen Xer in the early 70s that this was a momentous occasion because this was the first time, again, for younger listeners, it's difficult to, to encapture a world without a screen right in front of your face. This was the first transmediated event that we saw that we as a young generation could wrap our minds around and say, wait a minute, this is this is our civil rights moment. And so so it was a defining moment like like Kennedy getting shot or or 9-11 or right. anything like that. It was like this yep. is like to to the to typical white person living in Nebraska. This is just another riot on CNN of some sort. But, right. But to certain people, this is like a bombshell signature indication of where things are really at. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And it was funny because, you know, when you look back, when I look back, you know, most of the classrooms were still filled with white students, you know, or ethnic minorities who were still caught between trying to identify with their own ethnic heritage um, and still trying to assimilate and fit in. And, you know, a lot of my white counterparts just didn't understand it. They didn't understand what, what was happening. Why were we so upset? Why couldn't we just accept the verdict? Justice had been served, you know, and to this day, those are, those are still conversations. I mean, you know, 25 years plus years later, um, it's still a conversation and a hot topic. It's still something that Los Angeles struggles with. And, you know, it was... It, it, I think after the uprisings, there was a time of unity, uh, unlike I've ever seen before, um, at least in my life, uh, between Bloods and Crips uh, and organizing. This was at the height of, you know, most people know Tupac as just a rapper, but he was a big organizer in the inner city. Most people know Snoop as just being on Martha Stewart. That's not the early Snoop days. Um, you know, he was a Crip from Long Beach. And so he was, him and, and Pac, Dre, the people that most people just listen to their music and think it's cool, were big organizers in uh, South Central um, and Watts, Compton, um, and were organizing. I mean, Tupac's goal was to have a hip-hop political candidate by the year 2000, and not just a, a Democrat, not just a Republican, liberal, conservative, but to have somebody who actually speaks 
for the interstate. He had raised about $500,000, you know, at the time of his death, unfortunately, in, in 96. These were all things that were taking place, you know, during this time. I mean, Bloods and Crips were coming together, organized. We were going down to City Hall and demanding, like, this is, we, <laughs> we it's time. Like, you know, this is, this is, again, this is our civil rights moment. We need to seize on this time. So tell me how hip hop. Yeah. Like what, to most people, it's a genre of music. It's like, yes. oh, if I open Spotify, that's one of the buttons. <laughs> yeah. And I might. I might click on it or I might not, but to you, hip hop is something much deeper than that. What is it? Well, it's a culture. It as you know, somebody who t- studies you know cultures, it is it is lived. It is something that has style, that has language, that has now generational connections. In my you know hip hop class that I teach every fall, um, I I take hip hop history. You know, most scholars you know would suggest that. What we see now is hip hop is, you know, the musical genre emerged around the 1971, 1972. But in my class, I take the, the, the cultural elements of community, self-awareness, spiritual connectivity, understanding your connection to the community, to the world, to the earth. That goes all the way back to 7th and 6th century Africa. And so looking at those principles and looking at those things and beginning to see that the music was just an eruption of that, that the people needed to speak, people needed to, when you think about hip hop, think about sampling records in, in the early stages, you know, and taking a song that was meant to sound one way and completely breaking it down and deconstructing it uh, and putting it into another sound. Trisha Rose talks about this in Black Noise, one of the first academic studies in 1994 in her book talks about, you know, how these constructs came together and how, uh, you know, sounds have melded together. This is an ethnomusicological study when you study the people and their music. This is also what's called a theomusicological study. When you study the theology around the music and the people, this is John Michael Spencer's work uh, in, in the early 80s, when you begin to see that, now you begin to see beyond just lyrics and beyond just people trying to get paid. At the core of the culture, this is people trying, and when I say people, I mean of all different ethnicities and background. Hip-hop is one of the few musical genres that you can take um, around the world and engage with social equity, social injustice issues. When I was in, I spent some time in France and uh, Paris, and I don't speak French, but I speak hip-hop. And that's how we were able to communicate for days on end. Uh, (laughs) and, uh, and, And, but it was amazing to me that, you know, folks who were under the authoritarian boot of the state you know, could connect with NWA, could connect with uh, Talib Kweli, could connect with some of these artists. And we were able to share a similar experience, you know, across, uh, you know, an ocean and whatnot. And so that to me signifies that there's a much stronger connection. And this, of course, gets into social psychology uh, and cognitive science. You know, the, the science around uh, hip hop and the brain is amazing. Uh, when people start doing work and looking at, you know, how classical music affects, you know, cognitive mind waves, we see that, you know, certain genres of hip hop, particularly when you think about lo-fi hip hop or chill hip hop, uh, that does the same, has the same effect. And, you know, on the brain, you know, when you start thinking about somebody like Erica Badu, she connects with that sociotheological spirit and begins to, you know, say, you know, you need to calm down, you need to rest, you need to relax. These are all things that, you know, uh, folks are just starting to come into awareness of now about, you know, how third eye theology and chakras energies affect us and whatnot. And I think people of color have had, you know, that particular science and that engagement down for a long time. It's just come into, you know, think, think about how popular yoga is. I mean, folks, these have figured right. out yoga a long time ago. And parts of India are institutionalizing it. 
where at work, you just go do yoga for an hour to rest, to, re- to relax, to relieve stress. Whereas here, it's, you know, this phenomenon. Like, oh, my gosh, it's like people who just figure out sriracha sauce. It's like, oh, my gosh, have you heard this new thing, sriracha? I'm like, yeah, bro, I've heard of that in the last 30 <laughs> years, man. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm saying? I, I got it. <laughs> so, so there's a, a section in your book, and you quote a Jay-Z and Kanye West song, No Church in the Wild. And it says, human beings in a mob, what's a mob to a king? What's a king to a god? What's a god to a non-believer who don't believe in anything? Yeah. Now, you unpack this in your book. There's a lot wrapped in here in in the hip-hop context. So, I mean, what I hear you saying is that hip-hop is a shared language of frustration about the system such as it is. Yes. At least in part. Yes. And this song is a commentary on how the system works from the very bottom to the very top. Cause God is at the top and in a mob is, I suppose the bottom. What does this really mean? Well, I mean, that's a great question. I mean, that song really, and the title of that song was actually the original title of the book, but the publisher wanted to go with, with Homeland, which I'm fine with. But if I'd had my brother, brothers, I would have definitely gone with No Church in the Wild. But that saying, No Church in the Wild, is just that. My argument is, is that what is the wild? And not the, necessarily the literary, you know, connotative definition of, of the wild, where people are just crazy and just chaotic. I'm talking about space that we have not engaged with either spiritually or theologically or even religiously. Um, what does that look like? What does a church, a coming together, the koinonia, the community, those who are committed to helping one another, what does that look like in an environment that has traditionally been hostile to Western evangelicalism, for example, um, or, or Western Christianity? And so for me, this song captures the time that we're in right now. You know, this is the age of information and age of, of digital literacy where people have access, to, you know, unprecedented access to stuff that we never had. I mean, I never had access to an online dictionary. I actually had to go pick up a big old book that was, you know, 900 pages big. And that was our dictionary. I actually had to use the, the, the library files and go through the card catalog. Um, you know, kids today don't have to do that. They have no recollection of that. They have no memory of that. So this is an era where people are saying, do we really need a God? Because what is a God to a non-believer? What is a God to somebody who says, I'm good. I don't need a Bible to tell me I don't need to cheat on my wife or my, or, or my partner. I don't need a Bible to tell me that I need to be moral good, that cheating is bad, that lying is, is, is bad. I mean, I don't, I don't need a Bible. That. So where then does that leave us? And that's really some of the questions that I raise uh, in the book. Uh, I just present some of the research from some of the young folks that I've engaged with and their frustration with current religious and social you know, constructs around Christianity particularly, but also just religion in general. Like if we have organized religion and it's been responsible for wars and deaths and and social injustice, why would we serve that God? And then more importantly, if we serve a God that says it's supposed to look out for us, take care of us, why hasn't God shown up? Why didn't God show up for 400 years 
you know, for the, in the transatlantic slave trade. You know, where where was God at? I mean, this has been an ongoing, right, humanist and atheist uh, perspective, right? You know, for a long time, where is God at? Where is your God? And so this is something that I wanted to, wanted to hold in intention and wanted to hold uh, in space uh, at the beginning of this book. And I tell all my readers, like, this is not a book for, of answers. I don't end the book and say, okay, here's the problem. And then at the end here, now we've got, no, I'm sounding the alarm. I'm saying, we have a problem. We got some things we got to figure out. And here's what I see from my perspective and, and from what my research has shown. But clearly, this is not the definitive, you know, answer. But there's clearly no church in the wild. And when, when we talk about a, a church that exists, that is engaging what is happening right now. And, you know, you may have a church that deals with race, but they don't necessarily want to deal with the whole human sexuality piece. Or you may have a church that's, you know, really great on human sexuality and the LGBTQ concerns, but man, they're really missing it on race. Or you have another church that kind of does both, but boy, oh boy, everybody's rich in that church and they really don't know what to do with their money. So we're struggling. I think we're trying to figure that out collectively um, as, as people of faith at this current moment. One of the great things about living in Chicago for me is the tremendous diversity of all the things that are available. And -hmm. while most people just live in their particular suburb and do their particular thing, I always like jumping outside of it. So like my friend John and I started something that it's sort of like a church plant, but it's in a bar and it's, yeah, it doesn't really fit categories. But if I want to do church, my favorite place to go is All Nations Worship Assembly, which is a 95% black church on the south side of Chicago. And mm-hmm. and I noticed um, a long time ago, I'd, li- I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. White people go to church to play house. And black people go to church to lay their burden down. Mm. So, like, if you go to a white church, it's like, Everything is perfect and everybody's hair is perfectly combed and everybody starts and stops on time. And it's almost like this pageant of sort of pretending to be perfect. But if you go to a, like go to one of those three hour long black services where there's a whole bunch of gospel music and stuff, like there might be some woman who's, son got sentenced for five years this week, right? And nobody's hiding it. Mm -hmm. It's not, and it's less pretentious, but it's like two completely different planets. Mm -hmm. It's like this world knows nothing about this world. And so when you talk about no church in the wild, it's almost like what is wild to one group of people is tame to another group of people. And what is, but I think what you're saying with that phrase, which I think is a great phrase is that I think maybe you're referring to what I talk about when I say that white people go to church to play house, like to, to pretend that there's no wild like everything is nailed down we got our answers we got our theology everybody's sitting with their dress or their suit and and you seem to be saying well not so fast there's actually a lot more chaos going on than anybody wants to admit 
Am I anywhere close to the truth here? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I do. I mean, yes, there's, I mean, there's been plenty of studies done on, you know, the differences between white and black congregations and, and, you know, just some of the difference in, in style and worship and whatnot. I think, you know, if we go a little bit further, then we have to ask ourselves, okay, when somebody decides, okay, I want to go into a, you know, professional ministry, I want to go get, I want to get paid for it. I don't want to just be a lay person or whatever I actually want to go into. We have to begin to ask ourselves, well, who is training? Where is, where is that material coming from? And, and this is something, again, that I take up in my book is who are the teachers that teach the teachers and what is, what are their perspectives? And so it'd be great if we could all just say, okay, Look, Christianity, man, there are a lot of different perspectives. One of the things I love about my Hindu brothers and sisters, right? It's like they say, well, look, we have one God, but shoot, to these 10 people over here, they have this image of God. And to these folks over here, you know, when I go to the Hindu temple, you know, they've got all these different shrines around. And it's like, it's it's one way to say, hey, these are the guys that, that speak to these particular groups of people. And those are the guys that they pray to. In Christianity, we tend to say, this is the only way to study Christianity. Sure, there's this over here and there's that over there, but this ultimately, and that for me is where the problem comes in, because then we start looking at Eurocentric perspectives, uh, how we understand, like you said, Darwin. I mean, that's just one of many examples of who the theologians were and who were some of the folks, for example, that came through in the age of discovery uh, that had strong racist beliefs, probably wouldn't even call it racist, but strong bents towards biases uh, that then ended up shaping theology, ended up shaping books and texts and, and how people understood it. And so it's like I like to say, it's the racism is in the theological DNA. And so even within the black church that, yes, for a long time has been a beacon uh, of hope and justice and, and construction, but we're not talking about the black church of 1969. We're talking about the black church of 2019. And in my community here on the west side of Chicago, um, you know, you can go down North Avenue off of Austin and see a church literally on every block, on every corner. Yes. What is the change that's happening? If our God is so grand and grandiose, why are we still dealing with some of the same things? If you listen to political debates from the 1970s here in Chicago, all the way to, this was on NPR uh, about two months ago, all the way here in, you know, 2018, 2019, politicians are almost saying the same thing. Oh, we need to clean up the inner city. We're going to make things safe and we're going to get people jobs and everything. It's like, what has changed? And if God is so strong, why aren't things fixed if there's a church on every corner? When people say, oh, we just need to have more churches. It's like, well, eh, we kind of got that in the hood. And, you know, <laughs> you, you know, we go to a big mega church and it's like, man, all the money is locked up in there um, for finances and for uh, funding and whatnot. It becomes, yes, it's, it's very complicated. And I don't think there's any simple answers uh, to it. But yes, your analogy is definitely uh, correct in that. I think, you know, in my work, I also take up the challenge to the black church as well, because there's a major difference. I was with civil rights activists last August. There's a major difference between that group, those who walked in the march in the 60s and 50s and 70s uh, that are still alive, and those who are marching on Ferguson, Baltimore, Chicago, Memphis. There's a major rift. Um, and it was shocking to me just to see how deep that was. And that there was no white people there. This was just all ethnic minorities. And I was like, wow, there's, we could, we could, you might as well have a liberal and a, dem, uh, a, a conservative in, in the room. So explain that. Uh, like what you just said in the last 30 seconds. Yes. Well, I mean, it's a major generational divide with, um, you know, when you think about somebody who grew up, as Tupac said, BC, before crack, somebody who was born before the crack era, who was born prior to the shift um, and what Daniel Bell refers to as the post-industrial shift 
in the late 60s into the 70s, right? Um, a show, a satirical show that really captures this is all in the family, right? The struggle between Archie and his newfound hippie, you know, son-in-law uh, that is, you know, he's dealing with this major shift that is happening from a world that was once made up for him is now changing. But in the black community, you have major figures either be killed, sent off into exile, or sent off into prison. And those major figures, in coordination with, for example, Section 8 and housing, took a lot of the strong figures in the civil rights movement out of the community. And so you have a generation that was born out of orbit. The distinct cutoff from previous historical uh, environments was cut off between the years 1968 and 1975. So that by the time you reach the 80s, at the height of popular culture, right? MTV comes online in 1981, the height of what we think now as, you know, Madonna coming on stage, MTV Music Awards and stuff. There was a whole swatch of community being left out and being taken advantage of by anyone. Now I'm not blaming white folks. I mean, this is anyone, right? That generation that grew up then completely cut off from those who were born in the 60s. And then you add on folks who have grown up in what I like to call post 9-11 America, those who were born in the year 2000 or in the late 90s, have grown up in a digitized, mediated world um, that most of us, and I would include myself, because I have a 12-year-old daughter who is connected to her device for everything. You know, even when we put limits on the uh, on the phone, you know, we're still fussing and fighting. And for me, I'm always just like, go outside. It's a great day. But for her, it's like, well, let me take a picture of the outside, and I'm going to post it in five different places on TikTok and on Tumblr. And I'm like, whoa, where are we at? But I this last fall. Because I'm like, man, all of the freshmen that were entering college were born in the year 2000. They have grown up in a state of war. They have grown up in a state of quote-unquote terrorism, which is a whole other conversation in that. So there's a major generational divide that exists, especially between folks who claim Black Lives Matter, who are mainly ages 17 to about 28. Most of them are queer, most of them are trans, most of them are in the LGBTQ plus community. Um, and that is a major disconnect between those who still see things in a linear fashion or a more traditional form. And talking with those civil rights activists, you know, some of the same arguments came up. Oh, they're disorganized. Oh, they don't have an agenda. Oh, they don't have a plan. I'm like, brothers and sisters, that was the same thing that was said of you back in 1963 and 1964. The civil rights movement is, is completely unorganized. And again, I document some of this stuff uh, in my book and even look at, you know, people like Billy Graham who criticized uh, Martin Luther King for being, you know, an inciter of violence. An insider of, of looting. I remember having to think through. So I was, I was raised super, super conservative. Okay. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. And, and when I got in my twenties, I had to stop and think through about things like civil disobedience. Mm -hmm. Like, well, you know, so like the upbringing is like, hey, you know, whatever the law is, you just like do it unless it's just super blatantly, it's like, well, okay, but what if black people aren't allowed or have to like not get on the bus or something, you know? Right. Well, 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 then what do you do? Right. And then I guess uh, I would think of it as it's almost like you have to do a democratic equivalent of Augustine's just war theory. You have to like, <laughs> right. Figure out yeah, exactly. What is the appropriate amount of pushback? You right. know, you don't want to go too far. You don't want any 
more collateral damage than absolutely necessary, but you actually do have to break things or like a, a, a different version of this would be Uber. Okay. Yeah, there you go. Come it on. was illegal everywhere. And there was a period during Uber's management where they told all the managers, okay, your job this week is to break as many laws as humanly possible. Okay. <laughs> now the way I was brought up, you would never, ever do that. Well, yeah. The, the whole like taxi hegemony thing had to be shattered. Mm-hmm. It was a totally, it wasn't serving anybody except, I don't know, a couple of fat cats somewhere, right? <laughs> I'm glad they did. But like the, over and over in all kinds of different facets of life, you actually do have to ask these questions. Like, well, when do I just start breaking rules? Um, or, or like you going, you saying, okay, if I can't be a free human being and a free citizen in an allegedly free country, what's the point of being alive? And I'm not sure most people really understand what that feels like. Good point. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I talk about my upbringing and some of the folks that can relate are folks, for example, from Palestine, uh, being an occupied territory where you walk out the door and people ask you, you know, where's your ID? Where, you know, essentially, why do you exist? <laughs> and, oh, uh, you're absolutely right. You know, you're absolutely right. So how do you actually solve this? So I'll give you a little more of my story. So my goddaughter, like, well, so that was when she was three months old. And, and as she grew up, uh, she had three older, she actually had a bunch of brothers and sisters but I actually knew three of them well. And so I would take most of them to church every Sunday. I'd go pick them up and like, and we'd do stuff together and we'd eat Sunday dinner together. And I sort of thought, well, you know, I think we're probably influencing them. And I, I think, you know, I, I hope this is helping. Well, um, she had two older brothers that I never met. They were much older um, they both got killed, one in a drug incident, one got shot by the police in some kind of altercation of some kind. Um, I went to both of those funerals. And then one of the brothers I know very well was an accomplice in an armed robbery and ended up going to prison for four years. And the day he got out of prison, I was the guy that went and picked him up. And, uh, you know, I took him to Target and I bought him some jeans and socks and shoes, you know, so they uh, like have something to wear. Um, and, and, uh, there's an, another brother that's spent some time in some kind of a correctional facility of some sort. And I thought this didn't turn out as well as I thought it would. And these <laughs> yeah, problems, yeah. these problems. Oh, okay. And here's, here's a cherry on the Sunday. There's a, this guy named Bob Musikowski he's a whole other interesting subject all in himself, but the short version is he started the first inner city little league in New York and Chicago. And, and he lived on the West side of white guy, big family lives in the West side of Chicago and basically ran a halfway house out of half of his home. Okay. Mm. He's like in the hood. And I was talking to him. I, I said, um, well, we could adopt that girl, but man, that would be like a major inconvenience. And he goes, you know, it's inconvenient. 
going from heaven to earth and getting your ass kicked while you, your mother's watching. Man. Yeah. Uh, we was talking about Jesus, of course. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I, went, I had a conversation with my wife about it, and, and she says, I think if we did an adoption situation, we would create some major problems with our biological kids, and I'm just not sure that our family can deal with that much disruption. She goes like, I've already thought about that. But I mean, I'm being extremely transparent about like, well, um, you know, maybe you have to go to that extreme in order to affect serious change in the world. Um, But I kind of look at this stuff as this huge dilemma. Like I, I can drive through the hood and I know what's going on better than most white people, at least, I don't really know what to do about it. Um, You know, waving play cards and protesting uh, doesn't really do a lot. So, I mean, oh, totally open-ended, like what give, what kind of response do you, do you have to that? Oh man. Um, (laughs) Well, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a complex one because, you know, this wasn't something that was created overnight. I mean, it wasn't something, you know, that, you know, racism took years to develop and systemic racism. I mean, I'm definitely all for reparations um, and whatnot, particularly for African-Americans um, in this, in this country and what we have endured. Um, but even with that, it's multi-generational. I mean, when you think about, I mean, just think about the difference. If, for example, I mean, I would just break it, break it down even further. I mean, I think about the difference between my wife, uh, who's white. So I'm in an inner, mm-hmm interracial marriage, uh, her family and my family. Now we're both working class. They were working class people. They worked their butts off. They worked their, you know, my wife's family worked their, you know, their fingers to the bone. Um, however, my father-in-law who just passed, unfortunately from you know, Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, um, you know, left us a little nest egg and it was nice. We were able to buy some things and pay off some things and whatnot. When my grandmother died, conversely, born in 1918, died in 19, in, in 2009, to her name, she had $700 left. And we had to use that money to pay off the $4,000 uh, funeral bill that was about to encumber. And so we were literally left you know, in the hole. And so you think about that generation, most African-Americans my age could trace their ancestry back to slavery, two, three generations, four at the most. And so it takes a long time. Like Tupac said, it takes a long time to become self-sustaining, you know, and he, he gives this whole analogy about, you know, everybody needs a little help when, you know, on their way coming up and becoming self-sustaining. I don't believe in the person that says, Oh, I'm a self-made man or I'm a self-made woman. I know you can say that, you know, it's just like when I go to talk to, you know, inspirational speakers, it's like, yeah, we can talk and be glory and all jeweled up and everything when we on stage, but you're right behind closed doors, who helped you? Who put some money in your pocket? And you know, and I can say a lot of people helped me. A lot of people has, have helped uh, my wife and I throughout the years. We should have been homeless dozens of times. The people have said, no, 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 come on over here. And I'm not saying everybody's got to go out and adopt somebody, but the systems have got to change. And I don't know what it's going to take for those systems to change. I really don't. And this is where I struggle with my own hope for the future and maybe discovering life on another planet, maybe first contact uh, which, you know, astronomy and astrophysics is something that I'm very fascinated with. Well, help us with that. I don't know. I mean, here's the Star Trek, right? Well, their first contact 2060 in the Star Trekian theology novel, right? So, uh, <laughs> I, but however, I think, 
you know, when the James Webb telescope goes up here in the next year, that's going to be able to detect life on exoplanets. I truly believe that that could, that could affect us or maybe not. I don't know. I mean, and that's the thing. It's like, we're at a place in time that I think as a human species, we have to decide, are we really going to look out for each other? Think about the climate, you think about other countries, think about the economy, or are we just going to just kind of set everything up for the very rich and just preserve everything for those who are elite? I think about, you know, the, the old film 2012, I guess it's old now. I came out in, you know, 2009 or whatever. Uh, but you know, it, essentially who survived in that movie was the very elite. Those who had billions of dollars who could buy the ticket to get on these boats uh, that were all the way across the world and were able to get there. And of course, governments and stuff. And so I don't know. I struggle, brother. I struggle. Children of men is a great film that I think uh, everybody should go out and watch. Um, There's a little documentary on that. uh, The possibility of hope uh, that's at the end of that, or if you get the DVD or Blu-ray, it's on that. You know, Children of Men ends with, and I, I don't want to give too many spoilers away, but it ends with a glimmer of hope. You know, the boat that picks up the people at the end is called Tomorrow. And when we think about that, I think I want to believe in a bright future. Most of us do. But I never believed we'd be where we're at in 2019, 30 years ago. Um, and so, like I said, the problems is it's not just about having jobs. It's not just about, you know, white people understanding black people. It's all of those things pulled together and change is difficult man i don't know i don't know i mean things have been so much i mean you know you get and black people have historically been disenfranchised when you think about all the accomplishments that african americans have tried to do in this country and gotten shot down and not even just shot down figuratively literally they were expecting a black president by the year 1893 this the republican party was created and designed to help african americans get ahead. This is what Lincoln's vision was, even though he kept his slaves, but that's for another story. But then the red shirts were created, you know, which later turned into the Ku Klux Klan. You think about Black Harlem, that was raided. When you think about Black Wall Street in Oklahoma City, in Tulsa, Oklahoma City, that was raided. People were killed. People were looted. When you think about the rise of the civil rights generation, all of our leaders have been killed off. So it's, it's difficult for me to have hope when I see the carnage that has happened uh, in the past. And any leader that has stayed up, right now there's currently no nuclearized, concentrated effort in in Black America to move forward. And I truly believe most people know that, hey, if we try to do that, we're going to get killed off. I mean, look at what Nipsey Hussle. Nipsey Hussle is the latest version of that, right? We're going to empower Black people. We're going to get them forward. We're going to do it. And what? He was killed. Um, You know, and it's like you get one Black man in office racially, ethnically, of course, he's African-American and and Euro-American. And, you know, eight years later, we have who we have now. So, and it wasn't like, you know, people said it, it, you know, Michael Eric Dyson said it the best. It's like people looked to Obama as, as Moses, but really he was working for Pharaoh's office. So it, you know, how then interpret that, right? <laughs> when you're in Pharaoh's office, you know, more de- people, you know, want to knock Trump, but more de- deportations have happened in one year under Obama's uh, legacy uh, than they have in all of Trump's presidency. And that's not lost on me. So I struggle, brother. I ain't going to front. I struggle. And you know, I know I'm a glasses half empty kind of guy, but I don't necessarily know. I wish I had a magic wand, but I don't. Maybe we get a DeLorean. We can put some signs together and, you know, get a flux capacitor and go into the future 30 years and stuff. And I, I, I don't know. Are you familiar with Alexis de Tocqueville? Oh, man. You wrote that, Democracy in America? Yes, 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 yes. I got, yes, I got that on my, a couple of versions of that read, yes. Brilliant, brilliant book. 
And he has some very interesting things to say about race in America. So he's in the 1830s. Of course, you can picture what the situation was then. And he, he goes into extensive analysis of kind of like all the little feedback loops that reinforce the status quo at the time. Right. It basically says, frankly, people, I can't see a way out of this. This is like a freight train coming, and I don't know how to get out of the tunnel before it hits. And then if you read the book um, Native Son. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, when I read that book, what the biggest thing that jumped out at me, it was actually there's like this epilogue Mm -hmm. that kind of gives you some extra context. And – what I got from the epilogue was that in the 1930s when that book was written, so it's a, it's a book about racism. Uh, let's just leave it at that because we don't have time to go into it. But it points out that in the 1930s, race relations and Jim Crow laws and the, rela- the relationship between blacks and whites was very, very, very similar to what had already boiled over with the Bolshevik revolution in Russia. Yeah. It was like just teetering on a fine edge. Like if, if the wrong riot erupted or the wrong thing happened, we could have ended up with a cultural revolution or a Bolshevik revolution level of violence in this country. Yeah. And the Martin Luther King approach headed that off. He used a peaceful, reasonably peaceful at least, but confrontative civil disobedience, like the way they did that. Um, mm-hmm. and, if, and then if you look at where we're at now, it's considerably better than Tocqueville could see. But then when I draw the line that I just drew, it's like, you know, this could have gone very badly. It could have been way worse than it was right and and i would say it turned in a in a generally positive direction and then we're sitting here going we could almost see it from from here but this is where we're at and we also know it could get worse and so here we are like where's this thing gonna go and and it also strikes me that all of this is very very systemic and it's all very Mm self-reinforcing right it's like if uh, a white person thinks there's no problem because it's sort of invisible to them, then that's a self-reinforcing thing, right? And if there's, you know, poor kids in the hood with a crack mom, well, that's a self-reinforcing problem too. And and like, I don't know any other way, but you have to go cut those self-reinforcing loops wherever you find them and and. And it, it takes a lot of hands and feet to do that. It does. It does. Absolutely. And, and I don't, and I don't think there's a politician making a big promise. I, I don't, I don't think that's going to be it. <laughs> well, they all promise. They all promise. I mean, that's the thing on both sides. I mean, yeah, you're right. I mean, and I don't necessarily think it's going to come from that. I mean, I think it's going to, it, it change is going to have to start change usually always starts on the margins anyways. I mean, it's going to have to be grassrooted at some level because they are, they always, and they'll keep saying promises, right? You know, as long as they keep 
folks keep getting elected. Right. Well, um, tell everybody, how do they find you? Tell them about your podcast. Tell them about your books. Yes. If, if, yes. If they dug this conversation. Yes. What's next? Absolutely. Well, I do have a weekly podcast called Profane Faith. It's on iTunes or, you know, really wherever you find your podcasts at. Um, but you can go to whitehodge.com. That's all one word, whitehodge, like Dodge, but with an H, dot com. And that's where you're going to find everything. I have some select essays there. Um, all my books are listed there. Um, I have some audio of me doing other talks and whatnot. And then there's a link, of course, to White Hodge Podcasts where I have a connection, you know, you can search the archive there. I've got a couple of different podcasts that I'm a part of, but uh, Profane Faith is the main one. I have another one coming uh, up here, hopefully in the next uh, month called Progressively Black and uh, whatnot. But yeah, I, I got a couple of extra books that I'm working on. Uh, hopefully one on, on Tupac and looking at his spiritual and sociotheological message for this day and age that's putting out by Whippenstock. Hopefully that'll be out at the end of the year, um, early 2020. And then I have, you know, other research that I'm working on uh, with uh, young people between the ages of 18 and 28 uh, that I'm currently, we're still in the, the depth of research. So hopefully that'll be out within the next year, year and a half and whatnot. But again, whitehodge.com, you can stay connected with the brother. I'm on Twitter, all those good places. Again, that's where you can connect with the brother and, you know, chop it up. Come holler at me. <laughs> well, it's been fun chopping it up with you. I knew this would be interesting. And, um, yeah, while well, we stir-fried hip-hop, missiology, and evolution together, that there might be go. first in history. So, That's what's thank up, you. man. Thank you, brother. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com.